Welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast, your guide to help you manage life, money, and multiples. Each episode, host Paul Fenner, Tama Capital's president and founder, and the proud parent of four amazing children, including one set of triplets, will provide insights on successfully sustaining an active lifestyle, career, and family through comprehensive wealth management strategies, financial education, and lifestyle planning specific to parents raising twins, triplets, and more. Learn more, subscribe to the show, or connect with Paul at TamaCapital.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Tama may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. My guest this week is Dr. Laura Hutchinson, a licensed psychologist specializing in helping children and their families. Laura's private practice offers psychotherapy for children ages 2 to 12, teen girls, women, and families with a client-centered approach. As a play therapist supervisor, Laura also supervises clinicians and is the founder director of the Michigan Play Therapy Training Academy. In our conversation, we talk about the critical importance of self-care for parents when it comes to having the ability to take care of our families. Communication between spouses and partners is now more crucial than ever to ensure that we are taking the time to stop, listen, and reflect on what is being said to each other. Parents should recognize that it's okay to make mistakes and that we should be able to tell our spouse, partners, and kids that we are sorry. Laura stresses that how we handle these situations shows the behavior that we want to model to our kids. Laura discusses the impact that stress can have upon our kids and how each kid handles stress differently similar to how adults handle stress differently. Being in tune with how your child handles stress will help you determine what strategies you can use to best help your child. Finally, Laura points out that the average person needs eight hugs a day. During times of stress such as COVID-19, adults and kids need even more personal attention. Laura's advice is not to be afraid to show emotion to your kids. I have a lot of hugs to give out today. Please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Laura Hutchinson. So I'm really excited about having our guest on today's show, Dr. Laura Hutchinson, who is a trained licensed psychologist and has her own firm where she works with a plethora of different people from kids from two to 12 to teens and even parents. So I've had this date circled on my calendar for a long time because as a father of triplets and a plus one, this whole parenting in the age of COVID and homeschooling and trying to work, it's just been incredible. And Laura, I'm so excited to have you on the show to talk about what you do as a professional and just as important as what you're doing as a mom as a business owner, you check so many boxes of the people that listen to this podcast. So I am just really excited to have you on tonight. So welcome to the show. Yeah, glad to be here. So we'll just dive right into it. And going back to what we're kind of talking about before we went live is how we're handling kids in the age of COVID, because we all know that everybody's handling it different. And I think you said it really precise. We all have to be empathetic with each other and look out for each other. So where do you start working with parents or seeing like maybe cracks in the foundation when there's challenges at home with two parents working, trying to homeschool? Where do we start? I think one thing is compassion, empathy. Like I said that for others, but we've also got to really, and I'm struggling with this myself, have compassion for ourselves. Like realize that we are holding so much right now and plates are going to drop here and there. <laughs> and we're all kind of going through that stress. So like looking at, are there things that we can maybe minimize or like kind of cut out for right now to kind of cut out as much extra stressors as we can, that can be really helpful. And then also just kind of making sure that as much as we can, making sure we're also doing that self-care because obviously if we don't take care of ourselves, we have nothing to give. It's that whole airplane oxygen philosophy, you know, fill the cup, fill that type of thing. But it's true. Like if we don't have anything left, we're going to have less of a temper. We're going to have short fuses. We might regress or reach for unhealthy coping strategies. So trying to make sure, okay, when can I squeeze in time for just me and my spouse? When can I squeeze in time just for me to unwind and trying to figure out 
where you're not going to be able to go 100% at all of those, but making sure you got at least a little piece of a pie here and there to reach out those. Because one thing I noticed is that some of those, like even just little small things that were self-care pre-COVID were taken away, even just driving to the office. As a parent, that's like 30 minutes of not being a parent, like being able to be in the car, listen to what I wanted to listen to. Or we it also became, especially on my way home, it became the time where me and my husband were talking. And we didn't really think about the fact that we were no longer getting that time, even if it's five, 10 minutes before I get a call from an associate or the kids need something to kind of like squeeze in that time so we can connect or trying to figure out, okay, like if I switch this up, maybe I can have a little bit of time. So making sure we're having as parents, as humans, as people, we're having time for ourselves, time for our own relationships. We need to make sure we have that piece in there too. Oh my gosh. There is so much to unpackage with what you're just talking about. I was actually reading a, I think it was a New York Times article. They have an awesome parenting page within the New York Times. And one of the articles I was reading was in regards to your spouse, or your partner, you're basically living together, but it's like you're in an office environment where like, I can feel like Teresa and I, my wife, we're like passing each other. Like we're walking down the hall of an office where we just say, hi. And it's like, wait a minute, that's, that's my spouse. You know, that's my partner. And it's this really bizarre, twisted way of thinking about it. But it's true because my office is in our basement. Her office is on the main floor and I'm going up and down the stairs and I walk right by her office. And what do I say? Hi, how are you doing? It's really bizarre because normally she'll have a kid in there and trying to work with them, at least back in the spring. And we felt like we lost each other a lot. Like we had a harder time talking to each other. It wasn't like it was easy before COVID. COVID just made to me everything a little bit more harder and different in ways that I don't think anybody could have ever imagined. And having two spouses working in the same house with four kids in our case, it's a head scratcher. Oh, yeah. I said pretty early on, I'm like, I really feel lucky that our kids are at the age they are now because they are a little bit older, more self-sufficient. They can go ahead and grab something to eat like completely by themselves. They can do a lot of the school stuff completely by themselves. And then of course that also gives some challenges because okay, they are self-sufficient, but I also need to make sure that I am connecting with them and not like kind of losing them in that sense. But yeah, it is a struggle. Everything is kind of shifted and it's trying to figure out, okay, what are the good ways it's shifted and like really liking some of those because it's like, okay, we had a little bit more time. You know, we have more time together. We have less drive time. We have some of those things. It's like, okay, how can we monopolize on those things and then realize the areas that we need to kind of shore up with the things that were taken away? One of the things when I talk to families about financial planning, and it kind of goes back to the conversation we were having about you're in an airplane, you got to put the oxygen mask on yourself first, is that I tell people when it comes to wealth planning, you can do a lot of things, but what you can't do is everything. And I think I talk in terms of financial planning, but I need to look in the mirror and think, I need to talk to myself in terms of just my emotional well-being. And my relationship with my wife and my kids because I feel like it has changed. And to be quite honest, some of it's deteriorated. And I have a shorter fuse. I had a short fuse to begin with, but now it's even shorter. Oh, yeah, that's been common in our family, too. I mean, you're not alone. And we're seeing the trends of the negative coping strategies. There's more drug overdoses, more addiction issues, more domestic violence being reported. So obviously, it's just all heightened to all of those things. And it's blowing up at each other more because we're with each other pretty much all the time. And we only have so much space. And there's only so many people we're interacting with. And so it's all just kind of amplified for sure. So it's a very common experience for sure. So what, and I've actually thought this in my mind, the guys from Freakonomics are going to come back and do a post-COVID study, I bet. They're going to run some interesting testing and collect some interesting data on the, I'll call it the post-COVID effects of all the things that you just mentioned, suicide rates up, domestic violence rates, and what that does to family structure. So going back to that, what are some of the things that you talk to your clients about and your families and your kids about how to cope and what are some best practices, if you will, to be able to not blow up and be more empathetic, if you will? I think communication is key. 
the therapist could say herself, we're having our own struggles in our family, like making sure we're communicating and not just at each other, (laughs) but like really taking the time to stop and listen and reflect what you just heard so that the other person hears heard because it's so easy to fall in that trap of yeah, yeah, yeah. And not really hearing or hearing just to respond rather than actually listening to what someone's saying without figuring out what you're going to say next. And that's, you know, that's a skill that we've got to continue to work on. Is that something in your brain that you can just say, oh, wait, I realize I'm screaming at my kids right now and I just need to stop. And you just like a snap of the fingers, you just realize, can you stop? Can it be that trigger, I guess, or instantaneous? I think you can practice to get there. I mean, one thing is even better is if you can rewind that tape just a little bit more and knowing what is like kind of the trigger is, but like kind of what are your triggers? What are the things that you know start to set you off? Can you, and like when I talk to little kids, I'm like, can you figure out when you're starting to get like come from green, like come from coming with a green light where everything's kind of good and everything to now you're at the yellow. Like what are the caution signs that you're starting to see? Is it not feeling heard? Is it being interrupted? Those types of things and kind of figuring out obviously for ourselves what those things are and then helping our kids figure them out, helping our spouse figure them out so that we can also read their signs of, okay, you're kind of getting to the part where we need to maybe put on the brakes and slow down and figure out, okay, like, is it like taking some deep breaths? Is it walking away for a little bit? And also knowing it's okay to do that, like not forcing either your spouse or your kids. I see a lot of parents fall into the trap, like, we're going to talk about this right now. Is that really the best time? Maybe we should both take a time, like maybe we should both take a step back. We'll take a few breaths and we'll come back to this because the way our brains work is our amygdala, which is in like this part back here. And it takes over when you're kind of in that fight flight. And our we don't realize now that we're not still caveman and we need to worry about the bear coming to eat us or anything like that. We are still experiencing that anxiety, fear, all the things that we're experiencing right now in COVID and all the things we experience as parents all the time. We haven't figured out that that isn't actually like a physical threat. We process it in our brains the same way. So we react like, okay, we need their fight, flight, or freeze. Like we just totally shut down. And so that's why we need to kind of catch it at that point. Like when we start to realize we're maybe getting activated so that we can go, okay, let's calm down. So that this part, the thing part where we can actually think things through the part that's not necessarily completely developed in children, we need to kind of step back and go, okay, I need to put the brakes on. I need to stop and figure out what's the better way to handle the situation. Do I have to handle it right now? There's other things that we can be like, okay, let's wait until we all come down or let me think about this. Now you kind of talked about like, okay, so now you're in the middle of yelling at your kid and you realize, oh crap, I'm yelling at my kid. You can stop and go, okay, I'm not handling this right. And as an adult and as kids, sometimes people don't handle things right. And so it's completely okay for parents to make mistakes because what's important is the kid saying you make a mistake and then you recognize it and realize it. So even let's say you yelled at your kid, you're already in calm down mode and you're like in that guilt mode of, oh my God, I can't believe I did that. We've all been there. You still can repair it. You still can go back and say, hey, I blew up. It wasn't the right thing to do. I shouldn't have used those words. Or even if they overhear maybe an argument with parents or whatever, that wasn't how we should have been treating each other. And I realized that and I'm sorry. And what can we do now? So that they get that model. And also like that same thing of taking time for yourself, taking time for your spouse also is modeling. I sometimes forget like, yeah, I'm modeling healthy self-care. I'm modeling a healthy relationship. Yeah, sometimes parents need that space for themselves. Relationships do take work. It's not just flowers and rainbows all the time. So those are pieces too, like whether we're making mistakes or trying to help our relationships build, we can model that for our kids. And that's good parenting too. Because one of the things I often wonder about going through this, and again, even before COVID, is I find myself stressed I have a short fuse, so it's easy to get angry and yell. I know that's not what I want to model to my kids because I know that they're picking up on that. Kids are, I'm assuming. Sponges. (laughs) Yes. And I want to do something different. I want to do something positive, but it's hard to like slam on those brakes as we were talking about. And part of it, I have gotten better at telling my kids, I'm sorry. Like I handled that wrong. And the interesting thing about the Petri dish that we live in our family with these unique set of triplets, 
which are identical twin boys and a girl and our younger girl is that they're all different. They all respond very different. And so how you handle a situation with one is different than how you handle a situation with another and another and another. Oh, yeah. We don't know how many parents have come in. They're like, they're nothing like the other kid. I'm like, you know what? That's so weird because they're individual person, you know, like right. being kind yeah. of joking, but it is, it's so hard. Like, cause you think, oh, well, they both came from us. They're twins, they're triplets, they're brothers, they're sisters. Each one of us have all of our unique experiences. We all have our own story. We can only see things from that perspective. So it is, it's really tricky. And what works with one doesn't work at all with another one. And then one thing will work for a while and then it doesn't work anymore. So it is, it's a constant shifting thing as a parent. And then we've got this other big, huge world shifting thing. So yeah, it's an interesting dance. I've read a lot when it comes to stress because before I started my firm, Tama, I spent 20 plus years in corporate America, high levels in finance. And it got a little stressful at times, as you might imagine. And so I was always working on stress management. Talk to us about stress management for kids. Like obviously long stretches of stress are not good for anyone, adults, let alone kids, but how does the stress affect kids? Yeah. I mean, it can really kind of keep them, kind of keeps you in that activated level. So you're never able to kind of calm your nervous system down enough to regulate. So you get a lot more acting up behaviors. A lot of that can happen as stress compounds for them because they don't necessarily have as much of a non-stress experience. So everything always kind of is that at that level and they might not necessarily know how to chill out. And different kids, obviously, each one of us kind of has a different level of where that's set. So some kids can handle a lot of stress and be completely fine. And it kind of just goes off their back. And then other kids can have just a little bit and their world is devastated. Stress management for kids is going to be as unique and individualized as it is for adults. Like what works for one isn't going to work for another. Making sure we all have sensory needs that we all kind of figure out like what we need to kind of help regulate like chewing gum or like putting on the fan when you're trying to sleep. All those different things that we just kind of, as we've grown, we've learned what we need. Helping kids kind of figure out, okay, well, does having a weighted blanket at night make you sleep better and feel more comfortable? All those types of things can help looking at like sensory needs and how they're being regulated, looking at how much connection they need. Then people need at least eight hugs a day, at least eight physical touches. Oh, wow. I'm way below that. I need to, I'm writing that down. I need to hug a lot more. My daughter's been counting lately. Oh, wow. (laughs) We talk about her filling her hug tank. She needs that. So like, if I'm working all day, how are we going to get those in? And how she needs even more right now because she's not getting that physical contact from any friends, like even high fives and whatever, just sitting close with a friend. How do we feeling that like emotional need of connection and what each kid needs for that? For my son, it's more like, how many memes can he show me in one day? But like, I've realized that's his way. Like he's reaching out saying, I want to connect with you. This is how I connect with my friends. This is how I know how to connect with other people, making them laugh through these things. And I was thinking back to like, we had stuff that was similar. It wasn't the same, but we all have like, what was important to us? You know, it really wasn't important to our parents, but having them listen to it and having me like, oh yeah, that's really funny. And also helping him understand when is okay to do that. Or when I'm just kind of like, okay, not right now, but we'll do that. Now, I mean, so I guess for the older kids, helping them realize, okay, I can't do this right now, but let's plan on doing this then. And then as parents following through. When my two boys are telling me about their FIFA soccer game on Xbox or Fortnite or Minecraft, whatever they're doing, and they're telling me like all this information, but I've stopped to make sure that I'm listening because I have no idea what they're talking about. Teresa actually picked up on this. She's like, when they're telling you that they're trying to connect with you, I think they're trying to make sure that you know that they're part of your world and vice versa. And they're also being like, this is so cool to us. We want you, I mean, just like when we have something really cool that happens to us, we want to share that stuff with the people we love. And if we get that kind of like, I don't care, that doesn't matter to me over and over. Obviously as parents, we can't be that all the time. But if the kids can't come to us with the small stuff, they're not going to come to us for the big stuff. And we can't listen to those Pokemon stuff or Minecraft stuff or show me this Fortnite out or, you know, show me what's on TikTok. Like we don't have a way to kind of be able for them to speak to the us and their languages and they don't think we can connect, then why would they care about the stuff that we say? And why would they feel like, okay, now I can come to mom and dad about this issue or 
So when do those foundational pieces get built? Like what ages? What you're talking about is you want them to be able to talk to you about the little stuff now so they'll feel comfortable about the big stuff later. How do you make sure you're not screwing it up now so that they will come to you with the big stuff? Because obviously that's what really gets important down the road. All the seeds are planted from the day they're born. I mean, from that early attachment of making sure their needs are met. They're fed, they're changed, we're holding them when they need it. It just keeps on growing. We're helping them. It's all like developmental psych. We're helping them with their first challenges of learning how to walk and making some mistakes and making messes. And all of those things just kind of keep on building. And I think what happens a lot of times is kids get to that stage where they're more independent. And sometimes I think a lot of times parents will kind of forget that they're still kids. They really haven't been on the planet this long. And especially if they're really verbal kids, smart kids, funny kids, engaging kids, like we forget that they're just kids. I love that you just said that because I have this love-hate relationship with the independence. When they were younger, I'm like, I can't wait till they're able to do this on their own and this on their own. But I think what I've found, Laura, is as they've gotten older and more independent and I don't have to worry about them, I'm not giving them the attention that I used to. And now I'm taking that time and devoting it to something else that they're not a part of. And I'm losing that time with them. You're shaking a big shake in the head. I'm like, I just hit something. I mean, it's such an easy trap for all of us to fall in. And the thing is, is they don't need us in the same way and as much. It's true. So we do have freedom. Then we had a lot of freedom when they're going to school all the time. And now that's shifting in one way or another, whether they're home whether we're trying to balance homeschooling and their studies like that, or whether they're in the half day schedules or whatever it's going to be. So yeah. So I think like we're having to, for some kids, like having to manage taking over the role as teacher, tutor, whatever, as well as lunch cook, as well as chauffeur, all those things. Parents have to do that anyway, but now we're having to do it without the assistance of the school. But yeah. So I think helping us figure out. So I think, I guess what I wanted to try to say is coming up with something that works for your family, your kids, that you're doing of a ways of a connection. So is it taking the time, making sure, like one thing, my kids, like last week I had a week long training, doing play therapy training. So I was crazy busy doing that all week on, on Zoom, you know, pretty much all week. Plus trying to manage the practice on the side. Yeah, I get that. And we'll, we're going to get to that later in the show, by the way. I want to know about that. So one of the ways that my husband tried to do that, because he knew there was less, they didn't have me kind of balancing it out. And they've kind of been trying to continue that, like on the days where I'm like kind of working straight through with work, taking lunch, because he has more of a like, okay, I'm going to, I can take my lunch break and do something for a little bit. So he's been watching a TV show, like they've been watching a TV show series together. So we're like, okay, let's watch a half hour show while we're eating lunch together. So having that, or we have like Saturday night movie nights or game nights. And sometimes, I mean, they're not, all, not every week as my head, I would love to be like, okay, we're gonna have it every week. We're gonna do it. It never works out that way. But making sure either Friday, Saturday or Sunday, we're going to do one thing as a family together, whether it's make a bonfire in our fire pit or watch a movie together or play a game. And sometimes it's an hour, sometimes it's several hours, but having some ways either weekly or daily that you are connecting as a family or connecting maybe even every once in a while. Like I make sure that I go out like today I went out just with my son and we just grabbed chai because we're not coffee drinkers. So we grabbed a nice chai. We did that. It was just the two of us or, you know, times where it's just me and my, and I can only imagine how it compounds with multiples, just this little thing. So even if you can do that every once in a while with one kid here and there or two kids that they make a difference. And then also having those like maybe seasonal holiday stuff that you as a family do, because that kind of what makes a family a family. One of the things like we've done, it could be small things like going to get um, ice cream in your pajamas the first, like the day before school starts or something like, or having s'mores or doing something like having all uh, like maybe a back to school ritual. And even starting it this year, it can be like, okay, maybe this is something you do. Or now that the school year is starting and we're going to have a little bit more structure, why don't we say that every Sunday night we're going to do, you know, we're going to try to do this so that the kind of the kids will have, everyone in the family will kind of know, okay, this is coming forward. I mean, I think especially when we know we're going to have these tight schedules and we can't necessarily attend to the kids throughout the day, it's like, okay, why don't we make sure that we do this at lunch or after school? We make sure we have a snack, like wherever it can fit in for your family, having it 
be, and it doesn't necessarily have to be the sit down dinner that we would all like imagine that would be wonderful. It, that doesn't necessarily exist for everybody. Yeah. We were doing a lot of those at the beginning of COVID. And as we got further into summer, those have like dwindled and dwindled and dwindled. Right. You're like, here's your peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Shut up. I need to do something. Like yeah. Yeah. I got to go. There's one question I want to circle back to when we were talking about stress that I didn't get to ask you about kids. Are there signs that parents should be looking for in their kids that maybe there's a bigger issue here? Like, because I've read where kids will form some kind of nervous tick or habit or something like hands or their mouth or something along those lines. And I don't know what necessarily, I don't think most parents know what necessarily to look for. Sure. Yeah. No, that's a great question. So, and I think a lot of these things are probably more com- I mean, and what we're seeing too is, of course, all of these things are probably going to be more common in general, just because we're all going through a lot of stress and the kids are too. And I think people were forgetting about how stressful all of this was for kids and how much was taken away from them. For a little bit, it was like, yay, we're out of school. And then it was like, but I miss it. Kids that thought they hated school realized, oh, there's this structure, there's this safety, there's these other people that I get to interact with, adults, kids, there's all of that. So kind of just overall, just recognizing that kids do get stressed and we need to make sure we're looking at it. So signs, first of all, if any of these signs are coming up, some of the ticks, sometimes that makes it worse if you acknowledge it, but just recognizing, I'm recognizing maybe you have some stress rate. I'm wondering if you're stressed. So as a parent, just talking to them about what they're worried about. It could be a great conversation right now as kids are going back to school. Like, how are you feeling about going back to school? Are there areas that you're concerned about it, worried about? It's always interesting to ask this question. And I do it like, well, parents will come in for an intake. They'll say, this is what's going on. And this is what they're worried about. They've never actually asked their kid what the kid's worried about. And the kid's worried about something completely different. So if we address maybe what the kid was worried about, maybe we wouldn't have the behavior issues that the parents worried about. So actually checking in with your kid and saying, is there something that you're worried about? Maybe what they're worried about isn't necessarily the concern that you think or you're worried about. And sometimes the kids honestly can't verbalize it. I was just going to ask that question. What happens if you can't get it out of your kid? If your kid just, no matter the age, I'm sure it's even harder for younger kids, but I'm just looking at my like nine, soon to be 10 year olds. And again, going back to they're all different. My girl, you don't know, like I've wanted to like bang my head against the wall because I'm like, people pay me good money to get stuff out of their kids. Why aren't you talking to me? And then I'm like, oh yeah, I'm your mom. Like, <laughs> right. Like it's different. Yeah, I'm your mom. Okay. So it's going to be different. But yeah, I mean, I think it is really hard. It's really hard to verbalize. And so we'll, we'll figure it out together. Like if you can't really come up with the words, just kind of give them a space. I mean, obviously if you think that there's really stressed and there's these other, I'm still going to get back to the, the answering, like the other things that you might be concerned about, but obviously checking in with a therapist. I was going to say, when do we get in to see you? So as a parent, like going in and I get these calls and these appointments often. And I, I really actually like them. It's kind of like, this is what's happening. Is this normal? Is this not normal? And even if it's like a couple of sessions and being like, okay, no, like things are okay. We kind of talked about some of the things that are concerning and maybe it's just one session. Maybe try these strategies. If that doesn't work, come back and see me or schedule the appointment for your child and I'll kind of get a feel of what's going on. And sometimes that can be really great because it doesn't necessarily have to be long-term. It can be kind of like, let's just see what's going on. See, just kind of like if you're going to your doctor, right? I mean, there's some things you're like, oh yeah, you can just do this and maybe they'll give you a suggestion. Then that thing goes away. So sometimes that can happen. Other times it might take a little bit longer. But even if everything's like, okay, as a parent, you're talking to a therapist and the therapist is like, no, really, I think this is pretty a normal situation. You're handling it how you should be. Here's a couple of different ideas. Try it out. And then maybe your kid has a few appointments. Then you already have that relationship established with the therapist. So let's say the next thing comes up. It's even that much easier because you've already established the relationship. The kid feels comfortable going to that office to see that person. All of that is there. So you can kind of use it as a additional support system, especially right now. I think it can be really helpful. So kind of like a follow-up to that, like how do parents determine that, okay, we need to come in and schedule an appointment with you or one of your therapists in your firm? I guess I'll start at the top. So obviously if your child is making any, like if they don't want to live anymore, it'd be better if I was just to any of those comments. And I've heard those comments from pretty young kids. And so it could be that they've just realized that that can be a way to get a parent's attention right away. But at the same time, 
they're needing to get attention right away. So whether or not they really understand what that means, we need to take those seriously and you need to talk to professionals. So that's like touch base. And you might realize you might get to it pretty, you know, pretty significantly. It doesn't mean it, you know, it, it can mean a variety of things, even if those things are happening. So obviously that if other things, real huge changing changes in eating habits, sleeping habits, withdrawal from the family, withdrawal from friends, those things are all kind of like red flags complete school refusal, which I think we're probably going to get some of that in a few weeks. So that might be a whole other thing. But if, you know, back when things were going on, obviously, like those are times where the kids are saying, I need a lot of help. (laughs) I don't know what to do. I don't know how to change my situation. Regressive behaviors for younger kids, like let's say they were completely potty trained, and now they've completely regressed. That can be so they're basically saying I'm stressed out. I want to go back to a time where things were better. Obviously, any extreme violent behavior. I mean, kids can be aggressive and are you have two <laughs> twin boys. I'm sure you've had a, a, your fair share of that. Oh, yeah. Sometimes I've learned, okay, boys, just have it out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so there's also another point where it, it kind of reaches another level where you're actually concerned about someone's safety in the house. Those are all things, obviously. The big things are like, are they concerned for their safety or the concern for safety of others? Could you see that if the patterns continued, that you would be concerned about their safety or the safety of others? If they're really struggling in school academically, either they always have been or it's like a huge shift. And huge shifts are always good flags, right? Because it's like they were this way and then their mood completely shift. That can be something. And those are usually pretty obvious to parents because you're like, you were never like that before. What's going on? Usually that means something happened. Sometimes as parents and as professionals, you know, one of the big questions I always ask, and it's funny because some people don't think about it, but when did it start? Oh yeah, well that's, it started when COVID started or it started when so-and-so passed or when we got divorced or the birth of the baby. And sometimes they haven't like put all those connections together. It's a life transition. And I talk about this in wealth planning all the time. A lot of people don't realize the amount of life transitions that you go through. COVID aside, whether it's new kids, new marriage, new job, new school, whatever. And I would guess just in financial planning, the more you kind of think about it and plan about it ahead of time and talk about it, the better prepared you're going to be. So the same with kids, like if for the instances where we can, when they're not emergency issues, and hopefully I'll remember to come back to how to prep for the blowups and the emergency, but for a baby or a divorce, or maybe we have a relative that is, you know, terminally ill, like things that we can kind of somewhat plan for. One of the best ways I love to do that, and I actually have a page up from, but there's books on all of this. So it kind of helps kids to be like, let's talk about this through a book. So these cartoon characters or these little fuzzy animals are going through the same things that we're going through. So we can talk about how it is when there's going to be a new baby, what it's like that there's different types of families. Some families all live together, other families, mom and dad live separate, like all those types of different books. And one of the things I love to do, because I have a whole bunch of them, but I'd love to like get my whole packet of like, these are all the books about divorce for kids. And I'll show them the pie. I'm like, just think how many kids must go through this. The more prepared and more knowledge we have, age appropriate, (laughs) but it helps us understand and helps us realize. And I think then also they don't feel as alone in that issue. They feel like, okay, my parents are here with me with this. So I know I kind of have this team of support, just like as coming to a financial advisor, like, okay, I can also have this support. This guy kind of has my back that I'm doing the things I need to do financially to kind of get me in this piece. So it's kind of this, we as a team, like, and I've found that too, when parents reach out to a therapist, a lot of times the initial issues go away. And then they're like, I don't even, we had that intake with you and now everything's fine. I'm like, well, yeah, cause your kid realized you showed your child. They feel like hurt. They feel, okay, we have movement towards this. And so then a lot of times the parents make the mistake of, okay, we're just going to back out. We don't need you anymore. Like we don't need the extra support. And then the kid is left feeling like, oh no, they did. So, oh, actually they didn't really care. So I like to tell parents that at first, okay, so let's make sure you kind of stick with this, make sure that we work through these issues or whatever's going on. And then we can work on me backing out of the picture as regularly. And they know that I'm always going to be there as a support. Two things. One is in the show notes, we're going to have links to your firm, your blog site, and whatever other resources you want to provide. So I know that you're going to give me a lot. This is going to be great. I think the listeners are really going to dive into those. And my follow-up question to what you just said was, and I know every case is different, but 
how long does that process take? Are you meeting weekly, bi-weekly, monthly? And I know it's every case is different. Every case is different. What I usually try to do is meet with parents first so we can kind of talk about everything. You tell me what's going on. If the kid's younger than a tween, let's try to do that just the two of us, <laughs> like, or the, just the three of us or whatever the parent dynamics are. I like to try to, even if they are divorced, have both parents there, but sometimes that doesn't always, whatever the family needs. So that way they can talk about from the very beginning, how was the pregnancy? Like, was that something that you had planned for? So I get a really good picture of what's going on. And then sometimes those are really tough questions. I mean, therapy isn't, it can be work, but like get all of that while the kid isn't there. What are the things you've tried? What are the things you haven't tried? So I get an understanding. So really good intake. And so we get to form and, you know, me as a therapist and the parent get to form a relationship too, because as a therapist that works with kids, we have more than one, like we almost have like more than one client with each client. Right. You have the parents and you have the kids. Yeah. And then sometimes you have the parents and then step parents or the grandparents, the teacher. It can get dicey. <laughs> yeah. A caseload of kids is a lot bigger than a caseload of adults. So, but, uh, so sometimes it's a really thorough intake and, you know, maybe a parenting support situation and you're kind of good depending on what the issue is. Sometimes, you know, it's a, a few sessions with the kid and a follow-up parent, you know, those are like when there's just a few things that maybe need to be tweaked out. I would say on average, and it really varies also through therapists. Like I kind of like to work with kids almost like a whole full year, just so I kind of see them through a whole transition of a lot of changes and things like that. Usually starts off as weekly, and then you can maybe phase into every other week. So a lot of kids that I work, you know, that I like to do the whole year thing, but obviously not every child needs that and not, you know, and some people need more, some people need less. Some people, you know, we see each other for maybe 20 sessions and then we take a break and then later in life they come back. I mean, I've had kids that I saw between five and 18 and, you know, not consistently, but like throughout their lives and they're coming back. So that's kind of cool too, to kind of like establish almost that like lifelong relationship with somebody. Yeah, that's a strong bond tie relationship between the patient and the therapist, if you will. Yeah, and it's nice because then I also have that history. And I'm like, ah, I see why you're repeating that pattern from your childhood. You know, and they're like, oh, yeah, she would see that, wouldn't she? So, yeah, it, it kind of varies. Obviously, you know, the more traumatic and the longer it's been going on, the longer it's going to take to unravel and see what's going on, the better support of the child is by both parents. And the more the parents are kind of supporting therapy, the less time it's going to take. I mean, there's parents that, you know, they want you to fix their kid, but you realize obviously the kid is in the construct of their family. And if they're not going to, if they're not willing as parents to kind of change some of those dynamics and things that are going on within the family, there's not a whole lot me as an outsider can do. I can give the child coping strategies. I can teach the child that not every adult is like their parent. I don't think that's really what a lot of parents come for, but you know, that's what it sometimes it ends up being. I always tell parents that come in and they're like, well, we realize that we're a big part of what's going on and we want to recognize and work on our skills too. I'm like, all right, just so you know, you just missed, you just skipped five years of therapy. So good for you. All that money and time you just saved, you know, thank you. But that, and I also noticed that the same parents that sometimes say that are the same parents that once we get into like, hmm, you might want to do this this way instead, they get resistant. Oh no. Yeah. We're out of here. So how many parents do you see that come in? And I don't know if your firm handles this or not, but the parents end up with a therapist trying to work through issues. Because I think back to a gentleman in my industry that I'm very fond of. He's got this saying, better Paul, better husband, better dad, better family. And Dennis is like on that with me all the time. It's always constantly going. I'm like, if I can be a better parent, I'm going to be a better husband. I'm going to be a better dad. And we're going to have a better family. And so you're going to feel better about like they all interact too. Like then you feel better about yourself. Yes. They're all connected. Right. Instead of the other way where it starts to spiral down. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times you know, it can be, it can be sometimes a very touchy, sensitive issue of like recommending to parents. Like, and a lot of times I'm like, Hey, it, it's kind of been nice right now because almost everyone <laughs> 
could use therapy right now. And we're all going through stressors. So kind of using that as our like window in of like, and but it's the same spiel I gave, you know, before like, you're going through a lot. Being a mom is really hard. Being a dad's really hard. Like going through the situation is really hard. You might need, you know, it might be really helpful to talk to somebody and I can be a support, like, you know, I can be a parenting support for you, but I'm really your child's therapist. So maybe you would like a referral for somebody else in the office and we can even sometimes arrange it so that it's at the same time. And now we have this great, like everyone's much more comfortable with this whole telehealth thing. So it opens up the door of being able to be like, I now I'm like, I can talk with parents a lot easier. Like I think people can schedule their appointments much easier because you don't have to worry about driving to the office, getting childcare. You can try to have your session as much as you can. And then if your toddler comes in, it's like, oh, okay. Like they're here. We'll kind of pause for a second until we can redirect them. It's different than having to actually physically leave the house. And that's the note I just jotted down. How is therapy in the new world of Zoom and telehealth versus in person, because I've talked to some other therapists and the overwhelming response that they've come back to me has been, we like it just as much as therapists, but our patients, our clients, our families like it even more because they don't have to drive into the office, then drive back home. And it just seems like they haven't lost that human connection via video that you think would be different than being in person. So I'd be fascinated to know how that's been for you. It's been an interesting transition. I think I was already doing like some phone stuff with like supervisees. So we were just like talking. And so I was like, okay, I, I okay, it's going to be, and then I'll be able to see them. Like, okay, like, I think I can get used to that. Like getting too used to like, okay, I have to deal with seeing myself on camp, you know, like trying to figure out how to manage, you know, that and not being self-conscious, like all those things. It was very interesting with having a practice that has now 16 associates, the split, seeing how some of the therapists were so comfortable. Like I would much rather be at home, not worrying about trying to clean up the playroom and clean up our environment. Like they were just getting so anxious about the fact of being in person. They're like, no, this would be so much better to be safe at home, being able to connect with clients that way. Other people just like completely like digging their heels and I don't want to do it. I'm not going to do it. And I'm like, okay, we're at a stay home and we're order. Like at this point you have to, I'm pulling the plug basically. And some of them have already returned because we have an, uh, a couple of the offices in different, you know, in different locations, but some of the therapists have returned pretty much full time and they'd much rather do that. And other ones are doing both. So it just depends. What I found is the more comfortable the therapist is it, the more comfortable the clients with it. And making sure, you know, have that. There's a couple of situations where it hasn't been working. One, if people aren't able in their family environment to have a safe confidential space. Yeah, that's a good point. So understanding and honoring that for some clients that don't have that. Coming up with solutions, maybe, you know, can you meet in your car? Will you still have enough Wi-Fi? Or will they just still be right there? We've had those situations where the client is telling us they're alone we can tell that they're not just because of eye contact. Like one of my, my uh, therapists actually has a sign behind her that says, if you're not feeling safe and comfortable and you have something you need to tell me, text me or hold up, like write it down on a piece of paper and show me just for safety. I never even thought about that. That's really, really interesting. Some people are feeling like they want to meet with someone in person at first, but then they'll feel comfortable switching to the health once they met them. So we're trying to accommodate those people as best as we can. The other thing we're having a tricky with is the really little ones. Cause we see really little ones at our practice because we do do play therapy and play therapy is awesome because the kids can communicate through the toys and through their play rather than actually having to verbalize. For some kids it's worked okay. Like they can do that through like they're really playing out in their toy room or playroom or their bedroom. And it's been working out. I've been pretty lucky with the client, my actual clients that I've been doing it. Like it's been working. There's some kids that we've noticed in the practice that are processing trauma and they're little. We just decided it's better to move to the playroom because they need that safety, that space, that whatever that happens in that relationship, you know, face-to-face relationship. So those ones, that's one we've noticed that it is more important to do. But some of the kiddos that I've been seeing that haven't been in trauma cases, it's been really like we've been doing, like there's all these really cool, fun, interactive stuff. I, one session I did today, there's a virtual like sand tray. So like we played on that. Like there's all, you know, there's different things that now as an industry, we've been like 
amping up our skill set because we're like, okay, how do we do it online? So there's so much situations that have been working really great. I'm curious to know that your little kiddos that are in these trauma situations that needed the in-person care of you as a therapist. So does that mean they just lost it when everything got shut down and there was no one-on-one contact? They had a harder time and just their their screen talent, like how long they were going to focus on the screen. It wasn't their favorite show on the screen. Like it wasn't, so it wasn't engaging enough to keep their focus and they were off doing something else. They just weren't able. You guys still tried it at least. So yes. Yeah. It was kind of like we tried it. It wasn't successful. So let's try to see if going back for a few people makes sense. So one topic hot button that we have not talked about yet is screen time and video games. Because right now the easiest thing to do is to just give a kid an electronic device when they're whining or crying or you're at your wits end, you've got to get something done for work or you got to take care of something and you're just like, here's the device, just leave me alone for half hour, hour, (laughs) all day even. I worry about that for my own kids. I know other parents have talked to me and they're concerned about it. And we've tried to put time frames around things and sometimes we're able to stick with them and then other times we're not. And I know that the inconsistency is probably just as bad. Where do we go on that topic? Like where can you help myself and our listeners? Yeah, one thing I think is like that compassion for yourself. Like we can only do so much. And like there is the magic of the screen and their favorite video game or their favorite show or whatever it is on the screen. We have our own stuff too that we like to, you know, what we're going to do on our phone or our iPad. Like for me, it's a coping strategy. Yes, I need to zone out and play this stupid game for 20 minutes just to let my brain like decompress. (laughs) Decompress, exactly. So there is that nice thing. And so a few things. Obviously, balance is key. So trying to make sure that we have, okay, yeah, if we're going to make sure that, you know, so if we gave them the iPad all day, not the best great, you know, obviously depending on their age and what they're doing on it, that's a big thing too. What they're actually doing um, while they're having that screen time, because there's some screen time that's very interactive, very educational, very engaging, that they're learning like great strategies and skills. I don't know how to program, uh, to code anything. My kids both do. And they've talked about like people at universe, like, you know, engineering universities is like, got to make sure we're keeping up with what the kids that we're going to be getting are going to be like the kids that have been doing this stuff since toddlerhood that know how to use things. And actually like they need like pretty young to know because even in kindergarten, schools are using the computer for their standardized testing stuff. So if your kid doesn't know how a screen and stuff works, they're actually going to be at a deficit academically. They're also going to be at a deficit socially, right? If your kids don't know how to play those games, if they don't know. Minecraft, Fortnite. <laughs> Minecraft, Fortnite, the soccer game, whatever their circle of friends, they've got to be able to have that. I mean, like we were, it was just like just starting with Nintendo and stuff. Like that was important stuff. So understanding that like that's a whole new skill set that's okay for our kids to develop. That's a whole way of our kids communicating. I know like with my daughter, she's very much into Roblox, but she's in there talking with her friends, creating these things, coming up with business strategies, like all this stuff. So it's like, okay, like how bad is that? Like how different is that from the stuff that I used to play with my friends? We just didn't have this piece of technology to be able to do it. So some of it is like maybe changing our mindset of what we think about play. And that's tricky me as a play therapist, because like, I've also had many kids come into my playroom and have no idea what to do with a room full of toys. They had never seen toys before. That just blows my mind. I just can't fathom that. Right. To me, it is like, they've always just been given an iPad because an iPad doesn't take up very much room at a house. And it's either end of the economic spectrum. It's parents that one didn't have the money and space and you know, those things. That's even less so than the parents that were at the high end of the spectrum, but didn't want the mess or didn't want to be, you know, there's some families that like, I don't want that. Well, what are you doing to your kids not to have that? It's funny. I'll rat out my, don't tell my sister, but they were like that at first. So I have a nephew that's two and it took them a little while. It actually took, I think COVID with him being home all the time to realize how important that stuff of kids is it keeps them busy it keeps them occupied it teaches them how to do fine motor skills there's so many kids now 
they're finding a lot of high schoolers don't know how to use scissors. Because in school, they don't have to do arts and crafts, that type of stuff anymore. And we're not necessarily doing them at home. So they don't know how to use them. I mean, and as adults, we're like, what do you mean? You don't know how to do these like basic fine motor skill crafts. Like they don't know how things go together like in that way. So making sure with the screen time, they have the free play time, the manipulative type play time so that they have all their, they're getting it. So when we can figure out how we can add that into their day or structure that into our time of, okay, like, yeah, we gave them the screen for whatever. How can we balance it out with some other skills too, or sitting down and actually reading a real book at night or at a lunch break or those types of things to kind of break it up? Because I think there's nothing we can do right now. I mean, just with where we're at and all the things that we need to do at home and taking care of their needs and multiple kids, like there's nothing we can do about not. And if you think about it, like how many hours do we spend in front of the TV? Yeah, I have to remind myself of that before we had the electronic devices I was in front of a TV most of the time, or I was outside playing. And I think that's a lot of the parents I talk to frustration is like growing up, you just went outside and played. And I think we lose some of that because at any given point in time during the day, I could have six boys in my front room surrounded all around the Xbox, just watching it go. And they'll fight about whose turn it is like typical kids do. But what's interesting is that a lot of them will just come over and it's like they're watching a movie or something when somebody else is playing. That to me is really interesting because I wouldn't have had the patience for that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, even that's something that's huge, right? Is watching reaction videos and watching people play, you know, on YouTube or whatever. That's really interesting that, I mean, to me, when my kids are watching it, I'm like, why would you? But I think, you know, part of it is learning strategies and learning things the fighting about whose turn it is and who's going to play next. I mean, that's all great. I mean, what they're, they're learning social skills they are learning how to negotiate. And then I think there is that part where if, and when we can like kicking them out saying, okay, you guys, you've played for, you know, a couple hours now, get your butts outside for a bit and go play a real game, <laughs> you know, like, or, you know, but go play something with each other, you know, that type of thing. They're kind of like trying at least to get those pieces of life in their lives as well, as much as we can, when we can, Yeah, we've talked about life transitions and we're going to be going through one next week when we go back to school and they're not going to be able to be on it like they have the last four or five months. They're going to be going through withdrawals. One thing in preparing, and it's always, I always have a hard time with it too, but like doing what you can up until those days. So like for you, you have a few days, but we have like about a week for my kids and okay, like trying to make sure bedtimes are closer to when they need to be. I mean, because depending on your family and your structure, like it's gotten so out of whack. (laughs) You know, we always do just in summer anyway. We've tried to be a little bit better, but we also have a little bit older kids. So we've been a little bit more lenient, but trying to like get bedtimes, get eating times, like a little bit closer every day to where they're going to need to be because it's going to be like a big transition next week. Along with that, like also getting their, wherever they're going to be working, whatever that's going to be for whatever, like if it's in their own room or they're going to have, I know for us, like everyone's kind of in their own. And this is actually, this is the corner of my bedroom because I have confidential stuff that we need to talk about. I need in my own space. Our office is a shared office, so I can't do that. So I've created this space. It's my comfy chair. So I've been really comfy here, but just like creating that space again. And since it's been a while since kids have been in their workspace, kind of maybe sprucing it up, getting the stuff that they just like the back to school, you know, getting their environment set. So they're comfortable. They have the things that they need in their space, or, you know, if it's going to be a joint space, if parents are trying to multi, you know, like look over the bunch of them. Somehow getting, I've seen some parents getting like those dividers, like you can get at Staples or something like, you know, or online. So anything to maybe help them have their things posted, you know, so they have the things that they like posted around, you know, whatever it is to make that kind of feel new and special. Because just like we like to decorate our own cubicle or switch things up around here, you know, just move things around a little bit, like having them have like control over whatever that is, maybe a new pair of headphones or, you know, like whatever, you know, just some things to kind of help them prep that area and that space for next week can be like kind of a fun part of going back and getting ready for that transition. You only have a few days, so they probably will get it. But like when it's a little bit longer of a time, you can do some type of countdown, like either like on like a, a dry erase board or something like, so you can like count. So you can get, especially for the little ones that have like no, like you can tell them 10 times 
three days because they really don't, they really don't understand. Like, so parents, we are like, don't get why this super verbal kid that's like, why aren't you getting the concept of time? Cause they really don't get it yet. Like it, it, they just don't get it. So having something like either having like a family calendar that's like visible so they can see that like, this is how many days left or some type of sticker sheet or any of those types of ideas to kind of help them count down to when it's going to be doing something like that for the day too, like some type of visual, whether it be pictures or writing, depending on like how old your kid is and how well they are at like reading, having some type of thing so they understand their schedule for the day. Like, okay, this is when you're going to have this. And then maybe in there putting like, this is a time where you can connect with mom, or this is when, you know, I'll have a little bit of time with me, maybe, or you and your brother can play a video game for a little bit in the middle of the day and then you have to get back online and also just kind of knowing that next week there's going to be setbacks because there's going to be tech failures there's going to be links that are not made there's going to be whether it's on the school end or your kids end I mean I know my daughter in the spring was like oh yeah I did that you know like she didn't get on that call like she wasn't get you know the teacher's like so everything okay over there and I'm like oh Okay. So knowing like there's going to be some of that, there's going to be resistance trying to set things up so we can have the kids as successful as possible. And I also think like, and when they're not, or when you're struggling as a parent or when they're struggling, making sure we're reaching out to the school and seeing like not being afraid to be like, okay, this is what's going on. Like, how can we, what can we do? Because I think sometimes we kind of wait on that. Like, oh, we'll just see. But like, maybe they have a great strategy or maybe there's something that they, as a teacher, they can, or maybe if enough parents are saying this part isn't going well as a teacher, as a school district or whatever, they can help address those issues for us because we're all kind of flying by the seat of our pants and we need to kind of work with each other to see how much, you know, what, what's going right, what's not going right. Maybe talking with other people in your neighborhood or your school district of like, I'm having a really hard time on this day. Could they work together on these days? I mean, I know there's been all that talk about pods and things and whether people are like them or not like them and all that. But like coming up with strategies, I know like our high school, the high school students are offering like help and assistance for families to help out with kids maybe in math or certain areas where like the parents like, I can't do it. Like I can't, you know, I can't even do like math. Carry the one that, that's not allowed anymore. <laughs> Right. Yeah, exactly. So just finding, I guess, don't be afraid to find other solutions. Like look aside of the box for some of these issues that we might be having this fall because we know how it's been. And like once we probably get one hurdle or 10 hurdles crossed, there's going to be 10 more and we're going to have to figure out again. So like trying to figure out how can we problem solve these so that our kids are less frustrated, we're less frustrated. How can we work together so we can figure out some of these barriers that are going to come in our way. And I think what you've been talking about kind of aligns to one of the questions you wanted me to make sure I came back to was to how to prep for these blowups. Yeah. And it's true for anything, like whether like prepping for, like you talked about, like the times that you blow up, like literally blow up at your kids or the times, you know, that we just can't account for. We don't know what's going to happen. Making as many um, positive deposits in our emotional bank accounts. Does that make sense? There was a book on that. We used to read the kids about emptying your bucket. Right. Your bu- fill your bucket. Maybe I need to pull those out. <laughs> Gottman does his theories about... Yeah, the four horsemen of populace. Yes. Very familiar with Dr. Gottman's work. (laughs) Okay. So one of his strategies are about making those positive deposits in each other's accounts. And the same thing, we are always saying nice, kind things to each other, whether it's our spouse, our kids, our neighbors, our parents, like whatever relationship it is. I mean, it's for marriage, but it really is relationships. When we're making those positive statements... The next time there's a blow up, the next time there's a setback, we're going to have all those positive things as a buffer. Because if all you are is draining everyone, when you come in the room and you stub your toe and start swearing at everybody, like, and you haven't had anything nice to say about anyone in the last month, we're going to be like, what a jerk. Like, why is he always bad mood? What is about, but if he stubs his, but if you come in the room and you stub your toe and you start swearing we're going to be like, oh man, he must have had a really bad day. That must really hurt because we have all that backup. Like he's not really evil. <laughs> like, you know, he, but if you, all you've been doing is showing like that you're really in a really bad mood and nothing anyone does is right. Like that's how we're going to view it. But if we have that buffer, so just like in, you know, the financial world, if you have that buffer of money that's there, if you have that emergency fund, you can withdraw from some of that and you're not just like devastating that relationship. 
One of my last questions is one topic we haven't talked about you personally in this unique situation that you're in. Your mom, your business owner, what's it been like for you running your business through COVID? Because I know some of my listeners are business owners just like I am. So I think people would be very interested to listen to you or have you talk about your story and things that you've done with your firm. And you had mentioned previously that your firm has really grown a lot over the last year. Yeah. So last July, I had about five associates. By September, I had 12 and now I have 16. That's incredible. (laughs) So it really changed. I went from having my office to having satellite offices in South Lyon, Fenton, Detroit, Plymouth, and another office in, I think I'm forgetting one, South Lyon, Detroit, Fenton, Plymouth, And for the listeners that are outside of Detroit, those are all suburbs of Metro Detroit. They're all Metro. Yeah, all suburbs of Metro Detroit. So it just kind of went awesome, but crazy that I kind of had this expansion. And so, of course, we were just settling, kind of settling in. I just acquired more space in our suite, furnished those offices all of that beautiful, like was all excited about all that. And now we're home. So the first, of course, like everyone was having to make is like when to make that call, like when to kind of pull myself, other associates out, like, how do I make that call? Because with my business, each one of my associates are independent contractors. So they still have their own, like they're still their own, but they're under my umbrella. So like, kind of like, what's my responsibility? What's their responsibility? What decisions do I feel like can they make for themselves? And what do I feel like I want to make a bigger call because they are under my name? So, you know, obviously just kind of following the executive orders. Do you have clients that, because I get this question often, do you work with clients that are out of state? Because people think, well, because I'm here in Michigan that I only work with people in Michigan, but I actually work with people nationwide. And that's really the growing part of my business is people outside of Michigan. Because as I've developed these relationships with parents of multiples, whether it's twins, triplets, or quads, you know, I'm getting known in the industry as if you have twins or triplets, you need to go talk to Paul because he lives your life every day because he's got a set of triplets and a plus one. So he knows exactly what you're going through especially now that telehealth has kind of opened up. Do you have clients in other states? Can you do that? We can't. You can't. Well, we can only see, because we are licensed in Michigan, we can only see clients in Michigan. So it's kind of interesting. So, But if I were to go on vacation, I could still see my clients through telehealth because they're still in Michigan. So could you like reside technically in the state of North Carolina and still see your clients in Michigan virtually? Yeah. As long as insurances are still okay with like, they had this switch now, like we first didn't, at first we couldn't do this. So this is a big change to our industry is being able to use, even use this platform because we weren't allowed to before. So now I think they're noticing overall, like, okay, this works. This is viable. This actually brings services to a lot more people. So I think it's probably going to be here to stay. There is some talk about switching around. I mean, if telehealth's here to stay, do they also look on how licensing? And that gets really tricky because the licensing requirements for mental health providers are different in in different states. It's the same way with wealth advisors, financial planners, either register in a state or if you're big enough, you register with the SEC, the federal government. So for me, because I'm fully licensed so that I've passed a national board exam, so it probably would be easier for me to get licenses in other states. And I have thought about that, especially like, okay, what if I have one of my clients that I formed this relation? And that's where it gets tricky, right? What if I have this client that I formed this relationship and they go to school out of state or they, you know, and now like now they have a life transition. I'd like to be there and then I have to go through another transition. I have a therapist. So like ethically, like I'm, you know, it's like, oh, I really think I'd love to continue to see them. but I can't. And then, so then another tricky part is all of my associates are master's level psychologists, except for one. She's in their beginning of, you know, she's getting, gaining her hours and stuff. So she's in that first post-grad year of being a doctor. And um, Michigan is one of the only states that has a master's level psychologist. So that gets really tricky because other states wouldn't even recognize their license at all. So that's why it gets tricky to see other people out of state. 
There's also some with telehealth and with with seeing people out of state. There's also is some of those like how do we deal with some safety issues? Like what if what do we do in a crisis situation? I mean, still, so that's why it's really important to always know even on telehealth is where is your client right now? So that if I need to do like a wellness, you know, if I need to the police or someone to do a wellness check or something like that, we have access just because, you know, we want to make sure that people are safe. Well, this has been just an enlightening conversation. I've learned so much. I've taken so many notes and I know that you're going to probably send me some additional resources. I don't think I got to any of mine. So if we (laughs) want to do this another time about any topic. You know, I was just going to say, I expect a follow-up that, you know, later down the year we reconvene and we have a post-COVID follow-up. But I have a friend in the investing world and podcast world. His name is uh, Patrick O'Shaughnessy. And he's got a podcast of his own. And he has this great closing question he came up with, which is, what's the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? So I stole that from Patrick. And I've mentioned in other episodes that I wasn't going to steal it from him again. And I had to work on my own. So right now, my closing question is, what is the best thing about being a parent? The best thing, I think, is also the hardest and sometimes worst thing, and we touched on it a little bit earlier, is seeing your children grow and become individuals, become their own person. It is the most amazing and wonderful thing to see, but it's also so hard because you have to let go. And I think a lot of parents sometimes struggle with that letting go of them becoming who they are, not the idea of who we wanted them to be, but who they are and letting them be that. I mean, it's so wonderful to let them and see that grow and bloom and all that. But then there's also that like, okay, as they're doing that, they're also getting farther and farther away from me. You know, like they're becoming more and more independent and less needy of me. And that's really striking right now and hard that I know in two weeks when my kids start, and it's going to be weird because they're going to be starting, but here. So I don't know if it's going to be the same emotional experience of seeing them get on the bus and drive away. But, you know, having an, a student starting ninth grade, high, you know, having a high schooler and having a middle schooler and, you know, having that big transition of, you know, seeing them grow to that next step. That's the hardest, I think, and, and the best. Well, I think that's a great way to wrap up this conversation. Dr. Laura Hutchinson, I can't thank you enough for coming on and spending your time and giving us your thoughts and expertise on all the subjects we cover. And there's going to be a lot of these that we'll put in the show notes, but I am really looking forward to continuing to build this relationship with you and have a further conversation uh, down the road. So sounds great. Thank you very much for being on the Emotional Balance Sheet podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Please visit TamaCapital.com to subscribe to this podcast or to connect with certified financial planner and registered investment advisor, Paul Fenner of Tama Capital. And please join us again next time on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Mm-hmm.